Hello, and welcome to the Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout. Each week we explore classic sci-fi from the atomic age and beyond. I'm your host, Brad Grahowski, the voice of Brad.com. Today we bring you the first half of Of All Possible Worlds by William Tenn, originally published in Galaxy Science Fiction, December 1956. Narrated today by Brad Grahowski. Let's begin. Of All Possible Worlds, Part 1 Changing the world is simple. The trick is to do it before you have a chance to undo it. It was a real good job, and Max Albin knew whom he had to thank for it. His great-grandfather. Good old Giovanni Albani, he muttered, as he hurried into the laboratory slightly ahead of the escorting technicians. All of them, despite the excitement of the moment, remembering to bob their heads differentially at the half-dozen full-fleshed and hard-faced men lolling on the couches that had been set up around the time machine. He shrugged rapidly out of his rags, as he had been instructed in the anteroom, and stepped into the housing of the enormous mechanism. This was the first time he had seen it, since he had been taught how to operate it on a dummy model, and now he stared at the great transparent coils and the susurrating energy bubble with much respect. This machine, the pride and the hope of 2089, was something almost outside his powers of comprehension. But Max Albin knew how to run it, and he knew roughly what it was supposed to accomplish. He knew also that this was the first backward journey of any great duration, and being scientifically unpredictable might well be the death of him. Good old Giovanni Albani, he muttered again affectionately. If his great-grandfather had not volunteered for the earliest time travel experiments way back in the 1970s, back even before the blight, it would never have been discovered that he and his seed possessed a great deal of immunity to extra-temporal blackout. And if that had not been discovered, the ruling powers of Earth, more than a century later, would never have plucked Max Albin out of an obscure civil service job as a relief guard at the North American Chicken Reservation to his present heroic and remunerative eminence. He would still be patrolling the barbed wire that surrounded the three white leghorn hens and two roosters, about one-sixth of the known livestock wealth of the Western Hemisphere, thoroughly content with the half-pail of dried apricots he received each and every day. No, if his great-grandfather had not demonstrated long ago his unique capacity for remaining conscious during time travel, Max Albin would not now be shifting from foot to foot in a physics laboratory, facing the black market kings of the world and awaiting their final instructions with an uncertain and submissive grin. Men like O'Hara, who controlled mushrooms, Levni, the blackberry tycoon, Sargasso, the packaged worm monopolist, would black marketeers of their tremendous stature so much as waste a glance on someone like Albin ordinarily, let alone confer a lifetime pension on his wife and five children of a full spoonful each of non-synthetic sugar a day. Even if he didn't come back, his family was provided for like almost no other family on earth. This was a damn good job, and he was lucky. 
Albin noticed that Abd Sadha had risen from the straight chair at the far side of the room and was approaching him with a sealed metal cylinder in one hand. We've decided to add a further precaution at the last moment, the old man said. Uh, that is, uh, the scientists have suggested it, and I have uh, uh, given my approval. The last remark was added with a slight questioning note, as the Secretary General of the United Nations looked back rapidly at the black market princes on the couches behind him. Since they stared back stonily but offered no objection, he coughed in relief and returned to Albin. I am sure, young man, that I don't have to go into the details of your instructions once more. You enter the time machine and go back the duration for which it has been preset, a hundred and thirteen years, to the moment after the guided missile of 1976 was launched. It is uh, 1976, isn't it? he asked, suddenly uncertain. Yes, sir, one of the technicians standing by the time machine said respectfully. The experiment with an atomic warhead-guided missile that resulted in the blight was conducted on this site on April 18, 1976. He glanced proudly at the unemotional men on the couches, very much like a small boy after completing a recitation before visiting dignitaries from the Board of Education. Hmm, just so, Abdsada noted. April 18, 1976, and on this site... You see, young man, you will materialize at the very moment and on the very spot where the remote control station handling the missile was, uh, uh, handling the missile. You will be in a superb position, a superb position, to deflect the missile in its downward course and alter human history for the better. Very much for the better, yes. He paused, having evidently stumbled out of his thought sequence. And he pulls the red switch toward him. Gomez, the dandelion root magnate, reminded him sharply, impatiently. Ah, yes, the red switch. He pulls the little red switch toward him. Thank you, Mr. Gomez. Thank you very much, sir. He pulls the little red switch on the green instrument panel toward him, thus preventing the error that caused the missile to explode in the Brazilian jungle and causing it, instead, to explode somewhere in the mid-Pacific as originally planned. The Secretary General of the United Nations beamed, thus preventing the blight, making it non-existent, as it were, producing a present-day world in which the blight never occurred. That is correct, is it not, gentlemen? he asked, turning anxiously again. None of the half-dozen men on the couches deigned to answer him, and Albin kept his eyes differentially in their direction too, as he had throughout this period of last-minute instructions. He knew who ruled this world, these solid, well-fed men in clean garments with a minimum of patches, and where patches occurred, at least they were the color of the surrounding cloth. Sada might be the Secretary General of the United Nations, but that was still a civil service job, only a few social notches higher than a chicken guard. His clothes were fully as ragged, fully as multicolored as those that Albin had stepped out of, and the gnawing in his stomach was no doubt almost as great. You understand, do you not, young man, that if anything goes wrong, Abd Sada asked, his head nodding tremendously and anticipating the answer, 
If anything unexpected, unprepared for occurs, you are not to continue with the experiment but return immediately. He understands everything he has to understand, Gomez told him. Let's get this thing moving. The old man smiled again. Yes, of course, Mr. Gomez. He came up to where Albin stood at the entrance of the time machine and handed the sealed metal cylinder to him. This is the precaution the scientists have just added. When you arrive at your destination just before materializing, you will release it into the surrounding temporal medium. Our purpose here, as you no doubt, Levney sat up on his couch and snapped his fingers peremptorily. I just heard Gomez tell you to get this thing moving, Sadha, and it isn't moving. We're busy men. We've wasted enough time. I was trying to explain a crucial final fact, the Secretary General apologized. A fact which may be highly... You've explained enough facts, Levney turned to the man inside the time machine. Hey, fella. You, move! Max Albin gulped and nodded violently. He darted to the rear of the machine and turned the dial which activated it. Flick! It was a good job, and Mac Albin knew whom he had to thank for it. His great-grandfather. <laughs> good old Giovanni Albani. He laughed as he looked at the morose faces of his two colleagues. Bob Skeet and Hugo Honeck had done as much as he to build the tiny time machine in the secret lab under the helicopter garage, and they were fully as eager to go. But unfortunately for them, they were not descended from the right ancestor. Leisurely, he unzipped the richly embroidered garments that, as the father of two children, he was privileged to wear, and wriggled into the housing of the complex little mechanism. This was hardly the first time he had seen it, since he'd been helping to build the device from the moment Honick had nodded and risen from the drafting board, and now he barely wasted a glance on the thumb-sized translucent coils growing out of the almost microscopic energy bubbles which powered them. This machine was the last hope of 2089, even if the world of 2089 as a whole did not know of its existence and would try to prevent its being put into operation but it meant a lot more to Mac Albin than merely saving a world. It meant an adventurous mission with the risk of death. Good old Giovanni Albani, he laughed again happily. If his great-grandfather had not volunteered for the earliest time travel experiments way back in the 1970s, even before the epidemic, it would never have been discovered that he and his seed possessed a great deal of immunity to extratemporal blackout. And if that had not been discovered, the Albans would not have become physicists upon the passage of the United Nations law that everyone on Earth, absolutely, without exception, had to choose a branch of research science in which to specialize. In the flabby, careful, lifeguarding world the Earth had become, Mac Albin would never have been reluctantly selected by his two co-workers as the one to carry the forbidden banner of dangerous experiment. No. If his great-grandfather had not demonstrated long ago his unique capacity for remaining conscious during time travel, Mac Elbin would probably be a biologist today, like almost everyone else on Earth, working out dreary gene problems instead of embarking on the greatest adventure man had known to date. Even if he didn't come back, he had at least found a socially useful escape from genetic responsibility to humanity in general 
and his own family in particular. This was a damn good job, and he was lucky. Wait a minute, Mac, Skeet said, and crossed to the other side of the narrow laboratory. Albin and Honek watched him stuff several sheets of paper into a small metal box, which he closed without locking. You'll take care of yourself, won't you, Mac? Hugo Honek pleaded. Anytime you feel like taking an unnecessary risk, remember that Bob and I will have to stay in trial if you don't come back. We might be sentenced to complete loss of professional status and spend the rest of our lives supervising robot factories. Oh, it won't be that bad. Albin reassured him absentmindedly from where he lay contorted inside the time machine. He watched Skeet coming toward him with a box. Honek shrugged his shoulders. It might be a lot worse than even that, and you know it. The disappearance of a two-time father is going to leave an awful big vacancy in the world. One-timers like Bob and me are all over the place. If either of us dropped out of sight, it wouldn't cause nearly as much uproar. But Bob and you both tried to operate the machine, Albin reminded him, and you blacked out after a 15-second temporal displacement. So I'm the only chance, the only way to stop the human race from dwindling and dwindling till it hits absolute zero, like that fat old security council seems willing for it to do. Take it easy, Mac, Bob Skeet said as he handed the metal box to Albin. The Security Council is just trying to solve the problem in their way, the conservative way, a worldwide concentration on genetics research coupled with the maximum preservation of existing human lives, especially those that have a high reproductive potential. We three disagree with them. We've been skulking down here nights to solve it our way, and ours is a radical approach and plenty risky. That's the reason for the metal box, trying to cover one more explosive possibility. Albin turned it around curiously. How? I sat up all last night writing the manuscript that's inside it. Look, Mac, when you go back to the guided missile experiment of 1976 and push that red switch away from you, a lot of other things are going to happen than just deflecting the missile so that it will explode in the Brazilian jungle instead of the Pacific Ocean. Sure, I know. If it explodes in the jungle, the epidemic doesn't occur. No Shapiro's mumps. Skeet jiggled his pudgy little face impatiently. That's not what I mean. The epidemic doesn't occur, but something else does. A new world. A different 2089. An alternate time sequence. It'll be a world in which humanity has a better chance to survive, but it'll be one with problems of its own. Maybe tough problems. Maybe the problems will be tough enough so that they'll get the same idea we did and try to go back to the same point in time to change them. Elbin laughed. <laughs> That's just looking for trouble. Uh, maybe it is. But that's my job. Hugo's the designer of the time machine, and you're the operator. But I'm the theoretical man in this research team. It's my job to look for trouble. So just in case, I wrote a brief summary of the world from the time the missile exploded in the Pacific. It tells why ours is the worst possible of futures. It's in that box. What do I do with it? Hand it to the guy from the alternate 2089? The small, fat man exasperatedly hit the side of the time machine with a well-cushioned palm. You know better. There won't be any alternate 2089 until you push that red switch on the green instrument panel. The moment you do, our world, with all its slow slide to extinction, goes out, and an alternate goes on, just like two electric light bulbs on a push-pull circuit. We and every single one of our artifacts, including the time machine, disappear. The problem is how to keep that manuscript from disappearing. 
Well, all you do, if I have this figured out right, is shove the metal box containing the manuscript out into the surrounding temporal medium a moment before you materialize to do your job. That temporal medium in which you'll be traveling is something that exists independent of and autonomous to all possible futures. It's my hunch that something that's immersed in it will not be altered by a new time sequence. Remind him to be careful, Bob, Honick rumbled. He thinks he's Captain Blood and this is his big chance to run away to sea and become a swashbuckling pirate. Albin grimaced in annoyance. I am excited by doing something besides sitting in a safe little corner, working out safe little abstractions for the first time in my life. But I know that this is a first experiment. Honestly, Hugo, I really have enough intelligence to recognize that simple fact. I know that if anything unexpected pops up, anything we didn't foresee, I'm supposed to come scuttling back and ask for advice. <sighs> I hope you do, Bob Skeet sighed. I hope you do know that. A 20th century poet once wrote uh, uh, something to the effect that the world will end not with a bang, but with a whimper. Well, our world is ending with a whimper. Try to see that it doesn't end with a bang either. That I'll promise you, Albin said a trifle disgustedly. It'll end with neither a bang nor a whimper. So long, Hugo. So long, Bob. He twisted around reached overhead for the lever which activated the forces that drove the time machine. Flick! We hope you've enjoyed Of All Possible Worlds, Part 1, written by William Ten, narrated by Brad Grahowski. For more information about Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, visit thevoiceofbrad.com spaceman. If you are enjoying Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. The Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout is written, produced, edited, and performed by Brad Grahowski. Let's wrap things up with an excerpt from next week's conclusion of Of All Possible Worlds. He shot his arm out cold, uh, as cold as they had figured, and pulled the object inside. A sealed metal cylinder. Strange. What was it doing out there? Anxiously, he opened it, not daring to believe he'd find a document inside. Yes, that was exactly what it was, he saw excitedly. He began to read it rapidly, very rapidly, as if it were a newly published paper on neutrinos. Thank you, and journey well among the stars.